Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. Welcome to the show. We have Ibrahim Bashir on the show today. He's a seasoned product leader and VP of product at Amplitude. Ibrahim has played a crucial role in shaping product strategy and driving innovation in Amplitude. Been at the center of a vast amount of products that we're very familiar with, like Kindle and just a whole bunch of other different companies. He's an advisor, chief creative officer. I'm super excited to have him on the show. Thanks, Ibrahim, for joining. Yeah, thank you, Kevin, for having me on Product Coffee. Excited to be here. Super excited to dive into a lot of things, product leadership. But before we do that, I'm sure I butchered the introduction. So please give our guests a little elevator pitch on yourself, some background information. Yeah. So no, I mean, you did a great job with your intro, but I'll give you the the two second spiel or the two minute spiel, which is I'm Ibrahim Bashir. I lead the analytics product team at Amplitude, which is an analytic platform that helps people build better products. I've been in Amplitude for over two years now and have served in a variety of product leadership roles at a few companies over the last few years. Really started out my career as an engineer built a lot of different software technology, but did a career U-turn engineering and went into consulting for a number of years and then eventually landed on product as what I wanted to do. So my first real product role was at Amazon in the early days of the Kindle. So owned the online Kindle sales experience, the integration of the device with an ads platform, localization and internationalization, did some PM market launches, was the PM of the original Kindle Fire tablet, which is now actually a product family of set-top boxes and other things. And then from Amazon, actually worked on the platform PM org at Twitter. So owning the infrastructure and platform strategy, things like reliability, performance, scale. Our job was to remove the fail whale, reduce the cost to serve customers, actually help the company go public. So I learned a lot about sort of technology that serves billions of users. From there, I went to Box and was the general manager of Box's developer products, workflow products, owned a lot of the core services and technology. And now I'm at Amplitude leading the analytics product team. Wow, this is amazing. So let's kick us off with a question that we can kind of dive in. One of the things that you've discussed is how owning the product differs from owning the customer's experience. We've talked a lot here on the show around developing for that customer experience as well and how to think of that as you're building and innovating on products. Can you explain what you mean by that and how you ensure that your team delivers on both fronts. Maybe I'll start with sort of an acknowledgement of my own philosophy and biases around product. Like I mentioned earlier, my first real product role was at Amazon. And one of the things that drilled into you at Amazon is the customer obsession and the customer experience. But I think what people don't understand is that's taken in the context of putting yourself in the customer's shoes and everything they need to go to figure out your product, become aware of your product, buy your product, receive your product, use your product in every capacity, maybe even refurbish your product 
product, hand off your product, kill your product. And so all of that becomes your problem as a product manager. So when I worked on the Kindle, and partly it's the benefit of working on sort of a physical product, you had to think through the shipping experience, the logistics of it, the repair of it, the, it's my device is stolen, my content is inaccessible. And so you had to think through all these dimensions and you try as much as possible to put all of it into the website or the on-device experience. But at some point, they're going to have to talk to a physical human or they're going to have to read physical instructions or they're going to have to do something on their own. And so putting yourself in the shoes of a person who can end up in all sorts of various scenarios was very, very helpful. I remember very early on, we had an issue where people would buy a device and a lot of them would buy warranties and the warranties weren't getting activated. And, you know, my initial response was, well, that's like a partner problem or a vendor problem. We don't, we're not even people who sell the warranty. But if a Kindle buyer has a repair issue and they just forgot to activate their warranty, that's our problem, right? Like that entire experience is our problem. And so figuring out all sorts of things like that became my issue. And I, and I worked on a lot of things that people would consider edge cases or outside the breadth of product management. And so it's been interesting to me, you know, as I transition from Amazon into other roles, or at least over the last couple of years, I've definitely seen a bias towards the pixels being the product and not the customer experience being the product. And what I mean by that is, so to give you some specific examples, things that I get think at the short end of the stick, especially in B2B products where I work, is the help documentation, the depth experience, right? Yes. It's a support experience. I think for good reasons, for workload reasons, for focus reasons, people say, well, the pixels where I operate, that my engineering and design team spend their majority of their calories, that's the product. But to a customer, you know, it's Conway's law. They're like, hey, the, the entire thing is your product, right? Like the positioning on the website, how I attempted to self-serve access it, the trouble I had activating, the interactions I had with your professional services team, the demo experience, all of that is the product experience. So I think thinking through all of that is really, really important, whether you're working on consumer products or B2B products. Yeah, so there's a lot going into that to enable it to happen as a leader and to act on it as an individual contributor. So I would imagine when you're on an IC in a role, you have the surface area of the product that you own or, you know, there's some way that you have defined accountability over your product. And and maybe that's coming from leadership, right? Or or maybe it's something that is just inherently kind of, you know, through the team, we own these XYZ things. Now, how as a leader, how have you seen that to enable like the scaffolding for that creative way of thinking to say that it's no, it's not just your service area of ownership or the things that you directly touch and manage. You kind of have to get like a lot of departments swimming in the same direction, right? So how do you actually like work to build that scaffolding as a leader to set your teams up to get to that end result? Yeah, the way I think about it is metrics are a good way to do it because a lot of times teams tend to focus on sort of usage or adoption metrics around their specific surface of the product. But the reality is you can up-level metrics to say it's not activation on a tab or a page that you care about. You care about activation holistically, just to hear activation as an example. And so I always encourage folks to think about what are the problems from the customer perspective, even if they're quote unquote, not your problems or quote unquote, outside your purview, right? Yeah. And so yeah. if you're talking to customers and they're like, yeah, you know, historically X percent of people who get here activate. And you're like, how could we fundamentally increase that number? People might say, well, you know, there's only so much optimization I can do on this page. The real problem is, Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The real problem is they have to go read this guidebook to get up and running. The real problem is there's this other persona that's involved. The real problem is the documentation is, is janky. I'd say, well, then why don't we go fix the real problem? Right. And usually it comes down to, well, it's outside our scope, outside our purview. That's not product work. But if the, the job of product management is to do the highest leverage things to get the user from not a user to a user 
from a vanilla user to a power user, from a power user to like a wild fan, right? Who's advocating for you regularly. And so my philosophy is whatever you need to do to go do that, let's go do that. If it's outside your scope, we can change your scope. If there's organizational boundaries preventing us from collaborating, let's put some grease in the wheels and, and accelerate that. And if it's sort of convincing people that that's higher leverage, I can help you tell that story. So I, I try to remove the perceived or actual hurdles to actually doing what I call high leverage work. I have a friend who has a strange job title. He's essentially like chief escalation officer and has been at a couple of different companies. He basically reports to the head of product and he deals with all the ordinary customers. Right? And he's supposed to find trends and themes and like what's broken. And he tells me all the time, he's like, no product team wants to hear it, but most of the roadmap is meaningless. And the best thing you can do to help your customers is fix your documentation and things like that, because he sees it in the wild, right? He sees it in the field, but nobody wants to hear that because we've all sort of been trained and coached to think there's like a product building solution. Like we have to build and innovate our way out of this. And sometimes it's like, you got to fix some broken windows, right? There's some simple things to do and they're low hanging fruit. And so I say, go pick that before you you start yeah. sort of 10X thinking. The way that you're saying to enable or empower that thinking for your team is to really focus them on a metric that it's not just shipping this XYZ, it's to focus on the customer experience measured by, in some cases, yeah. activation or retention or what have you. Yeah, and I think it's a maturity curve. I think you can have teams that don't think in terms of the holistic customer experience and metrics are one way to enforce that thinking, but even metrics can be Abused, right? People can focus on wrong metric or over-operationalize a metric and paint themselves into a corner as well. So I think you almost always have to be second-guessing or not, not second-guessing, but almost have to be like gut-checking, like, are we over-optimizing in a corner or do we still have the big picture in? And so that's why I think like regular check-ins, connecting work back to strategy, telling the story to an audience that maybe doesn't live in the problem day-to-day are all ways to sanity test what you're doing. Well, you said something good there. So connecting work back to strategy. Tell me a little bit as a leader, as you have coaching sessions with your team members, how do you go about that? Connecting that to the metrics? Yeah. I mean, I play dumb a lot, not, not play dumb. Maybe I am dumb, but like, I think the reality is if you're the PM or a designer in a particular area, you know, so much about the domain, you're like literally familiar with users and you're doing research calls and you're in it, right? Like you're really deeply in it. And I think sometimes you forget to stick your head out above the water and just be like, what ocean am I in? How does this matter? How does it exist? Right. And so I always just try to pull people back into that and say like, yes, I understand for now your thing is I got to do these research calls to validate whether this experiment goes out to the next step. But let's say you do that. Then what? Well, then I can ship this bet. Okay. But then what? Well, then it moves this metric. But so what? Well, this metric we think improves retention. I'm like, now we're getting somewhere. So this is all in service of improving customer retention. And so I try to encourage people as a PM, whenever you're talking to sort of an engineer who's like just churning out code or a C-level executive, they both want that same altitude. They're just like, why does this matter, right? And if you think, if you look at sort of feedback from people when things go awry or, or they're unfulfilled in their work, it always comes back to, I don't understand how my work connects. I don't understand how my work matters. I don't understand what these teams are doing. And so both the exec team and the ICs who are doing the execution work tend to have similar feedback, which is, I don't understand the context of this stuff. And so I think as much as we may try to dodge it, there is an implicit angle to the job of the PM as the cross-functional leader of most teams to remind people, why does this matter? Why do we exist, right, in the hierarchy of the organization? And how have we proven that? And the, the really interesting thing I find is sometimes you have that and it atrophies, right? Sometimes like a team is set up, it's like the job of this team is to optimize metric X. And I'll come along and I'll say, why are we optimizing metrics? And they're like, because we fundamentally believe that optimizing metric X increases the likelihood of free to paid conversion. And we did a bunch of math and it's solid and true. And I'm like, okay, when was the last time we revisited that? 
Because it could have been true 18 months ago, but the market has changed or user behavior has changed or buyer behavior has changed. And, and trust me, as of 2023, the market has changed, buyer behavior has changed and user behavior has changed. So I think it's worth doing a scrub of like, do all of our North Star metrics actually prove a correlation to the thing we think they prove to? They should all connect to like, I think this leads to pipeline. I think this leads to conversion. I think this leads to monetization. I think this leads to retention. I think this improves our margins. And so just double checking that math every so often, I think is super helpful. I love that. As somebody who works on a product that is not only for product people, but product analysts as well, I think that makes the job of the analyst way more interesting. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. hey, show me that my feature had a lift is not as interesting as, hey, can you confirm that our body of work for the year actually had an aggregate impact on the business? That's a much more compelling job for an analyst, right? I know Amplitude has a product led and a sales led, and I think you have marketing. Like there's a lot of different go-to-market approaches with the platform itself. Now you're responsible for the core platform. Is that right? You said the core analytical platform? That's correct. Yeah. Which I'm juggling one product, but multiple go-to-market motion. I love that. We're doing the very similar things. I'm at share through and we have like a traditional ad tech SSP or exchange that you kind of going to market in different approaches. We're doing the same thing where you have a sales led approach. One, you have a product with an open exchange. You'll have a front door as well with marketing. So there's a lot of different ways that we're very familiar with it. And I love it. It's super compelling and interesting because then you can measure those channels more effectively, see which ones are optimizing. And you actually, you have one product that is solving for different entry points. And I would imagine now that you guys have rolled out the product led, I think that it's been a year or so, maybe more, that you've rolled out the product led approach, the front door, this kind of freemium model. How is that? How has your product responded overall to this? Like, how has the strategy responded to this, rather? Yeah, I think it's really important to keep the baseline product consistent because you don't want to end up in a situation where you're building almost like two different products. So I think there is a tension in sort of keeping the core consistent. The other thing I'd say is there's always going to be a tension. This is you know true of every B2B product where the high end of the market is really going to push you towards sort of the edges, the boundaries of the product and real customization for their unique needs. And sort of the lower end of the market is really going to push you towards a uniform platform and just more value up front. And so I think just navigating that balance is a big part of the job as well. Tell me about the overall strategy for the team. How do you go about building strategy? And maybe before we go about that conversation, what is that PM structure there at Amplitude just to orient ourselves? Is there a CPO, multiple VPs, multiple, like giving kind of a structure to... Orient. Yeah. On a high level, we have a chief product officer who I report to. We have multiple VPs who lead different areas of the product. So our high level structure is you can think of our data platform as sort of the foundation of everything that we do. We have our analytics product, our first and core product built on top of that. And then we have additional products that people can grow into our ecosystem with that some of my peers lead as well. And I would say there's a difference between add-ons to the analytics platform versus new products. For example, a couple of years ago, we built an experimentation product that is like a net new product. And the way we think about it is if it's a new buyer persona, right? Or a new workflow, that's a new product versus if it's an enhancement to an existing capability, that's more of an add-on. How has that structure, as far as you know, in terms of the VP structure for each of those segments, how is that initially defined? What is that strategy? Initially, you were saying like the customer experience, like thinking of this holistically, but it takes all these teams that kind of, I don't know if they have silos or not, they don't necessarily, but like, how do you all swim 
in the same direction? It's a great question. I'll answer your question generically. And I think it's, it, we've applied a lot of this at Amplitude, which is as much as you try to orient yourselves around the journey of the customer, at some point, the org design does create friction, right? There will be lines where you're like, we're splitting some aspect of the customer experience. So we've we've tried to design around sort of large, chunky personas, right? So the data persona, the product persona, the analyst persona, the data science persona. So that's one way to sort of keep the top level boundaries fairly clean. But the reality is there are problems where teams need to work across organizational boundaries. And so we've, as much as possible, tried to enable that and accelerate that. And that's why sort of the cohesion of your product leadership team is critical, right? Because you don't want people solving the same problem from two different sides. You want them solving it by joining hands. And on the flip side, you don't want people avoiding problems because they're fundamentally cross-functional in nature, right? And so we try to stay ahead of that and get ahead of that. And, you know, we've tried a few different things to sort of enable and accelerate that. One thing I believe in, and I've tried at multiple companies, is the behavior you're going to get from PMs really matches the incentive structure of the org. And so you have to sort of celebrate the type of behavior you want to see. You have to make it part of the career ladder, right? And when, when we talk about winning, you have to celebrate exactly examples of that. So we've definitely done that where, you know, at a certain level, let's call it principle, you have to really show that you're solving customer problems and horizontal problems versus just moving a metric for a local team. And so that's definitely one way you sort of break the hierarchy or work against the hierarchy is to say, hey, to be considered a leader in this organization, you have to transcend the hierarchy. I think there's other things product leaders can do as well to help there. I think encouraging movement between parts of your product teams helps. Because then people come in and say, well, you know, when I worked in this area, this was our philosophy on this customer problem. But mm -hmm. now I'm seeing different lens, right? So I think that's definitely super helpful as well. Like I was at Box for three years and I managed at different times I had, when I started, I think I had two PMs. And when I left, I had 20 PMs and I, and I managed a much larger surface. But over time, we really helped people move between different parts of the product. And it does wonders for sort of your ability to sort of mix and match domains and, and come across as like one platform to your customers. Because people are like, I've taken learnings from different parts of the product and different interactions with go-to-market and customers and really enhance the entire portfolio. So I think that's definitely a trick you can use and encourage people to do. Yeah, a little bit. Right. One question, maybe we can go down this rabbit hole for a little bit. So we're dealing with a topology redesign and we've kind of just rolled out our latest iteration and we tried to be very intentful to layer on the strategy onto the topology. So each of the teams have like a clear ownership over a specific area. They have a clear user persona that they're building for, a clear mission for that persona that they're building for. And then there's the tech underlying it, right? There's the APIs, the microservices, the UIs, right? All the experience and touch points. And so we're trying to clearly define that, but also a little flexible on the details. And, and I'm curious to see, have you gone through a topology design like that? And what were the kind of your approaches to doing that? Did you make sure that you had a certain amount of things or yeah, like what, what was that? I understand the problem you're talking about. And what I'd say is I think strategy first is a good operating principle. I think there is instinct sometimes to make it people first, right? And I'm not saying don't don't put people as a priority. I'm saying it's not healthy to design an org around the constraints of the people you have, because that's always going to shift and evolve. And so I think having an org design that's optimized for executing the strategy you want to execute is good. Two is I always encourage leaders to be nice to themselves when it comes to org design, because they put so much pressure on themselves to be like, we got it. We got to nail this. And I'm like, you got to nail the next 18 months. If you're putting pressure on this to be the org design three to five years from now, you're, you're overthinking it. And so just try to get through the next 18 months. 
And then the third is there's always loose change. There's always like, you know, well, this is, this doesn't quite cleanly fit in this design. And I'm like, that's okay, right? That's okay. You can parking lot some stuff. And so what I try to say is every org design is going to optimize for something and create friction around something else. So it's really good for a leadership team, whether it's your product leadership team or just product engine design, however you operate, to really talk through what are our principles and what do we want to optimize? For. Do we want to optimize for understanding of certain customer personas? Do we want to optimize for fixing something that has historically been neglected from our customer's perspective, like performance or reliability or cohesion, right? Do we want to optimize for speed of delivery? And it always has to go back to strategy. You can't just say, well, you know, as a principle, I love performance, but it's like, but does it matter in your market right now for your user base, right? And so I think you have to go back to that. And then you say, okay, this, mm -hmm. these principles and these priorities that right now are how we tie break and pick a particular org design. And anybody can come along and say, well, you know, this org design mostly works, but it makes it really hard to sort of, you know, one team to own this technology. And you can say, yeah, that's a non-principle right now. Every team owning like a distinct bucket of technology is not a principle right now. And so I'll give you an example from my box days. We had an org design that really optimized for everybody creating their own net new capabilities. So, you know, a lot of people think of Box as a storage platform, but it's a lot more than that. It is workflow, it is metadata, it is governance policy, it has a lot of industry level verticalization. And so you had all these teams that were constantly iterating around what you could do with content, AI, ML stuff. And so they would all build stuff, but because I led the developer platform team, we were stuck trying to reconcile the API-ness of it or lack of API-ness of it at all, right? So we would have consumers who'd say, well, I don't understand. There's this feature in your product, but there's no programmatic way to do that on the back end, right? And so that's mm -hmm. limiting me. And so we had chosen an org design that created friction for the developer persona, right? And, and there's a completely different org design where you can say is everybody builds API first or there's like a centralized team that builds those APIs. It just comes down to how important is that persona, right? And how is important is it addressing that historical pain? And so I think where the org kind of bites itself is when you are unaware of pain, or when you don't make a real choice where people are like, well, this is hard. And you're like, well, just try harder. And it's like, no, you should be honest with people of like, we've optimized for ABC. We understand there's going to be friction around XYZ and that's okay for the next 18 months. You touched on another thing I wanted to go deeper on. So the core DevOps kind of this developer platform background that you have. One of the issues that we're struggling with now is to define, well, you know, I, I've seen developer experience teams work incredibly well when they're focused on enabling teams, but there's also a theory that each team should be responsible for their own architecture. And if they want to do it this way, X, Y, Z, then they can do it that way. Yep. And, and there's, so there, I, I see there's like a balance of shared context and knowledge in the company and help educating and building best practices, but also, you know, not being too prescriptive, right? And so, and, and there's like this balance of ownership that I'm curious to see how you and your teams have experienced this, where have you ever kind of leaned on a developer experience ops team to provide certain elements of the architecture? And did you still feel that ownership over it? Or there's a lot we can get into there. Before I answer, can I ask, are you talking about developer experience in an internal developer experience conference or external developer experience content? I just got there when I was talking through it. I think I was initially saying DevOps is like a enablement operations team, like a DevOps team. 
versus like yeah. a developer as a platform team. So a developer as a persona. And it sounds like you've, I think you've had more of the developer as a persona than- I've actually done experience. both. At Twitter, because both. I ran the internal platform, that's right, we, that's right. we had a team called developer productivity that was for your average Twitter engineer to be yeah. able to ship to production faster in a simpler environment with less complications. I've also worked on external facing developer products. Yes. Well, let's, let's start with internal. You know, one thing I used to, one hat I used to wear when I worked at Twitter on internal developer tools was imagine a world where these developers had a choice, right? Where they could literally say, instead of using these internal tools, I'm going to go on the open market and buy the best compute platform, the best storage platform, et cetera. That's the bar you want to set for yourselves, right? If you think you want to have a developer experience that is differentiated or world-class. And you can definitely see there are companies that believe that and invest in that, right? You hear all about, I've talked to many engineers at Google, and they always say like the developer tools are world-class, like unbelievable, mm. right? And so it, it gives them an edge in terms of the happiness of the developer and the type of talent they can attract and retain. Mm -hmm. And so if you think that is a differentiator for your company, then you should invest there. But if you're like, nah, just open source off the shelf, it's good enough. Like that's not, it's not going to matter for us. I, I think that's important. And I think where things get tricky is sometimes people are just say platitudes like we want developers to have the best experience, but it's like, but do you, like, does it really matter for your company? And I'll give you an mm. example. When I worked at Amazon, they would build lightweight versions of what I'd call average business software all the time. They had their own recruiting tool. They had their own like address book. And I'm like, why don't they like use things that every other company uses? And I think it was a two-part ethos. One was there was this hacker culture, like everything mm. should in a way that it can be extended and modified and played with. And it was just sort of an ethos of the company. Because most products on the market are not designed with that in mind, it forced them to build their own. And then two was there was this culture of frugality. And so it was like, if we could just lightly build it and maintain it, why don't we do that ourselves? And so it was interesting when I worked on the Kindle team, I would run into all sorts of problems. And it was very rare that I would run into a problem and there was no tool. Now, it might not be the world's most beautiful tool, but there, there was always a tool to figure it out yourself. So for example, one time Oprah Winfrey was like, hey, I want to give away a bunch of Kindles to it was like her Oprah's I forgot what the giveaway show was, but it was like Oprah's favorite things. And so she wanted to gift a bunch of Kindles. There's one flaw in the Kindle at the time, which was you had to buy it and then you had to buy content. Now you could pre-buy content, but you still had to turn it on so it could download the content. There was no way to sort of physically pre-procure at a factory level content because we need to know who owns the book, right? It's not the device doesn't own the book. You as a user of that device own the book. So if you have a device and you were to log out and somebody else were to log in, the content would vanish and their content would show up. It's like a fundamental like content rights thing. And we were basically fiddling with that because Oprah was like, I want to hand these out. I want them boxed and I want them to have my 25 favorite books of the year on preloaded. Now it's getting tricky because I'm like, we don't know who she's gifting them to. So how can they own it? And we had sort of a, a gift experience mm -hmm. that was kind of a way around this. And I was like, what I really need is a tool where I can feed it a list of serial numbers, provision certain content to be enabled. And then the day turns on, do like a magic switcheroo so that that person owns it. So I'm not breaking any publisher rules. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't like, I think we got to query the database. And people are like, no, there's a tool. There's like a tool that will let you access the device. And I was like, why on earth would this tool exist? They're like, well, you know, we, we did it because sometimes devices get stolen and people are like, I need you to nuke the content. And so it was designed for a different use case. Somebody just hacked it together. And that ethos led us to like be able to solve really interesting problems. And so where I'm going with this to bubble it up to your developer experience comment, I think it's very important for engineering leadership and I would call it EPD leadership, Edge Project and Design, 
to have a point of view on what the developer experience should be optimized for in a particular organization. Is it hackery? Is it accessibility? Is it speed of execution? Is it pain in deployment? Is it ease of testing? And then you can have friction where you don't think it's a priority and you can really accelerate things where you don't. And by the way, it's not, it's not purely a tools question. It's a process question as well, which is if you really want to optimize for getting product out quickly, don't have gates. Don't have alpha, beta, GA. Let everybody deploy on a daily basis. And as your company gets larger, you can have different rules for different parts of the product. At Amazon, for example, if you were changing Amazon.com, the retail website, it went out a couple of times a week and it required a VP signature to do an off-cycle deployment. But if you're owning a service on the back end, you could deploy multiple times a day. You could have your own rules. When I worked at Box, like mobile was beholden to like iOS and Android cycles. Web would go daily and developer products, we'd be like, we have certain lead times because we have to refresh the documentation and whatnot. And so we have planned cutovers. That's another way is to say like that part of the developer experience is how you actually ship and release code. So that's one thing to think about as well. I want to talk a little bit more about strategy. One of the questions we wrote here were, some companies thrive in a growing market while others excel in a market that is in distress. And so how do you determine which approach is right for your company and what core flywheel drives success in each scenario? Yeah, I think when we had talked about this question beforehand, I think it's interesting when you're in sort of boom times, the market is about who can help me get ahead, who can help me grow faster, who can help me get a competitive edge. And so people are looking for tools. They're looking to spend discretionary budget on things that might be a competitive differentiator or a competitive edge. And they're willing to try things that are risky and wilder because if even one of these things sticks, it could give you an advantage. On the flip side, when times get tight, people are like, I just want to run my business and not shoot myself in the foot. So they become a little bit risk averse. In boom times, growth tools, experimentation tools, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but like tools that help sort of push the boundaries of product market fit have a lot of value. I think in downtimes, tools that are core to keeping track of your revenue and your core user base and making sure that's tight and clean and polished are critical as well. Now, part of what I'm saying is there are two broad categories of solutions. I'm also saying there's a little bit of positioning trickery here that you can do because the same tools can be used for category A or category B. I'll give you an example. Uh, and I'll use a company that I'm not affiliated with, just that I've observed and evaluated a little bit, Datadog. Last year, if I'm Datadog, I'm probably saying, hey, look, the bugs in your product are the reason some people don't take full advantage of it. The bugs in your product are an inefficiency drain on your engineering team. Your DevOps team spending time troubleshooting stuff, let's get ahead of that with quicker time to identify, quicker time to resolve, et cetera. The story you're telling is all about acceleration and efficiency and doing more with the people you have. If I'm Datadog now, I'm saying, hey, look, you want to make sure that your core service doesn't go down because that's customer impacting. You want to make sure that the time to sort of triage and resolve P0 things is very tight because customer expectations have gone way up. You don't want to have any kind of outages in your product. And so the same platform, the same toolkit is being positioned for two very different things. I look at it two ways. If I'm working on a product, B2B product, it could even be a consumer product right now, is like, am I in a boom time or am I in a downtime? And do I need to lead with certain parts of my portfolio more or less? right now. And if my portfolio has historically been skewed in one direction, you might be in trouble. You might like you might be in a category that's on a downward shift. By the way, I don't mean to say broad strokes like it's downtimes right now because whenever so like, you know, X is struggling, Y is booming. So there are things that are flowing really well right now even though other things are are taking a hit. So if I were to restate that, if we're in a downtime, you focus on kind of shoring up the core a little bit or making sure that that 
primary value proposition is secure and intact and there's less buggy issues, what have you. And then if we're in growth mode, then it's more experimental. I guess what I'm saying is when you talk to users or customers or buyers, they're always doing the same things, but their mindset shifts a little bit. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Like, I'm like, yeah. look, what actually changed? Like, let's say you're building for product teams like we do. It's like, we still solve user problems. We still ship code and we still try to make sure people actually use it versus it sits on the shelf. But their mindset about why they do it and how critical it is and what they prefer people to do with it has shifted slightly. And so the way they want to use all their tools has shifted slightly. If you're a tool where you're like, I can serve many modes, it's time to shift the mode. And if you're a tool that could only serve one mode and people are wanting another mode, it might be time to dial down parts of your product portfolio and dial up other parts. I wanted to touch on, because you touched on this Oprah story, which I love, but I'm sure building products in the enterprise space, there's a lot of these types of custom solutions inherent for the size of their business or their unique use cases that inherently you're trying to build a product for in some cases. Talk to me a little bit about that enterprise type of product management strategy approach and how that differs from other approaches that you've seen. The first meta observation is in the B2C world, in consumer products, the user is the buyer is the admin, right? Yeah, they're they're all the same persona. Yeah. I mean, you can always cohort users between casuals and powers or like consumers versus creators or whatever your product thinks of it that way. But for the most part, it's like user behavior is more homogenous versus in B2B, there are really three distinct personas. There is actually maybe four. There is your user, your buyer. In a lot of products, there is your, let's call it admin. And then in B2B products, they might even be building for their end consumer and you might get dragged into that as well because it's like a second degree vendor. And so there's a lot of different personas. And I think where it gets tricky in B2B is in a consumer world, you can really understand user behavior and optimize for user behavior and plan around user behavior. But in B2B, many great companies have been built by completely ignoring the user and focusing on the admin or the buyer. Like Salesforce's first original innovation was like the admin is having trouble. So they went after the admin. I'm going to pick a product just to poke fun at it. You know, anybody who's ever used Workday will be like, I don't understand how this product exists. It's unusable. But like they're selling to a buyer, right? Nobody's like, I love my Workday experience. It's something that think about, which is when you're working at B2B products, don't be on a high horse about the user experience. Like really think yeah, about in that category, in that industry, what is the best route to market? Is it the admin? Is it the buyer? Uh, on the flip side, time has proven that in a lot of different categories, the user pull matters a lot. So as a general trend in enterprise software, I'd say user pull matters way more than it did 20 years ago, but there are still pockets where the user is not the primary persona to focus on. So I'll give you an example. I've worked, like I've side, like at Box, I didn't own security and compliance products, but I observed it. And I would say in security and compliance products, it's all about the CISO and the risk person. They want to know that should there be a data breach or should there be like a company ending event, they understand what's going on and they can quickly triage and troubleshoot it. They don't really care about the usability of the thing. And so there are still definitely pockets where you're like, hey, it's buyer driven or it's admin driven. That's my first observation with B2B. The second thing I'd say, some people might not buy into this, but I found it hard to really wrap my head around consumer behavior at times because it's so big and so broad. Data is the only way to make sense of it. Does that make sense? This is why experimentation is more popular and analytics is more popular in consumer products because you're like, I have a much population and I can synthesize insights from it. And then I, I tend to be more data led and the qualitative stuff adds clarity. But in B2B, I think you can actually be more qualitative led and the data sort of rounds it out because you have so many different avenues to understand what's happening. You can directly talk to your customers. 
Like when I worked at Twitter, yes, you could talk to your users, but like there's too many of them and you can't make sense yeah. of that. Versus in B2B, you're like, yeah, I could go on a roadshow and talk to a hundred customers. I could do that. You can talk to your sales team who deals with them day in day out. You could talk to your CSMs. You could talk to analysts who cover the industry. In B2B, you have a lot more proxies for doing user research. It makes it more of a needle in a haystack problem in the sense that you're like, how do I reconcile this Rashomon of a story. Because you can talk to solution consulting versus professional services versus account reps and get like three different versions of the same story of what's happening. But I find like they're puzzle pieces and I have to stitch them together, but at least the pieces are big. It's like, you know, it's that puzzle you get that's like 20 pieces are really chunky for kids. And you're like, yes, it's it's broken, but I could do this quickly. Versus with B2C, I feel like it's that 5,000 puzzle pieces. And you're like, man, I got to spend a lot of time just organizing the puzzle pieces. So that's something I definitely noticed. The third is B2C is a little bit just more direct. If people like your product, they're going to use it. And if it has value, they're going to pay for it. And if it doesn't, they're going to churn from it. And it's sort of cut and dry that way. When I first came to B2B products, I was looking for that cut and dryness of it. Absolutely. So now as a PM building in an enterprise company, how do you iterate? How do you build, test, measure, learn? fast enough when you're dealing with all of those variables. Maybe it's something easier to answer here. Is there one example that you can still enable that experimentation type of culture within that space that has worked for you in the past? I didn't mean to imply that in B2B products, you can't experiment. I think you... It's just different, you have right? To, I mean, it's a different it's way to just go different. Yeah. I think you have to scope down the problem and be very clear about your hypothesis and then experiment that, that way. I worked with an experimentation leader who, who told me that most teams are not even A-B testing, they're AA testing. They've already landed on a solution and they're just like mm. playing with two different of it. There's not a true A-B test of it. This is not unique to me, but one thing I try to focus on is are we in a discovery mode versus a delivery mode? Because in a discovery mode, you're experimenting to figure out where the solution might even lie or what is the scope of the problem to solve. In delivery mode, you're experimenting to optimize the best solution path. And so I try to bubble up. I'm like, hey, this thing is, is this about discovery or delivery right now? That's one mental model I use. The other thing I'd say, ju just to like answer a question I kind of brought up without answering, which is you have all these avenues of where you might learn in B2B. I think for product teams, if you have CSMs, they are your spiritual partner on the go-to-market side. Because if you think about it, an account rep, and I'm not saying this in a mean way, they are incentivized to close quota. So they will sell things on the edges of your product or that are not quite product market fit because they need to close quota. When you talk to solutions consultants, they will tell you what demos well. And that's really good to know, like the, the wow factor of the sales cycle. But all that's all that's telling you. Professional services will tell you what is so much friction in your product that people would literally pay them to do it for them. So that's a good signal, like what should be productized and not. But the only person who has the exact same job description as a PM, but says and go to market is the CS person. Because they're like, I just want people to adopt this product. And I'm incentivized to get people to adopt this product. The only difference is I don't build product to get them to adopt it. I build playbooks. I do documentation. I do trainings. I answer questions. So they are your spiritual peer on the other side. So I have a bias towards gravitating towards CSMs. And whenever, I, even when I'm sort of like helping out a company on the side, I'm always like, can I talk to to your CS team because I want to understand what they know because they know a lot of stuff and a lot of PMs don't access that at all. I love that. 
That's great. If the strategy is to optimize and to grow, enhance an existing value prop, that seems like a viable path. What about a, a zero to one? How do you approach this? It's interesting. So I think for a scaled product, you're not purely in delivery mode or discovery mode, right? You're, you're probably balancing multiple things across the product and across multiple products. I'd say in zero to one, you're trying to get to product market fit as quickly as possible. I'll be honest, when I first learned about the idea of product market fit, I thought it was voodoo. I was like, let me get this straight. It's a thing. You know it when you have it, but you can't really explain what it is. And people use terms like it's just pull. There's a pull in the market. I'm like, this sounds like voodoo science. Over the years, I have learned there are a bunch of empirical ways to quantify it. You can really sort of do surveys and look at data to understand retention levels, look at benchmarks in certain product mm -hmm. categories to really understand if you have quote unquote product market fit. And I've actually worked on a bunch of questions that I like to understand the answers to, to feel whether there is product market fit. Without honestly even talking to customers, it's like, hey, what is the number one thing you try to get across in a pitch meeting? What is the number one thing you demo? What is the number one thing you could turn off in the free plan that would force people to pay? These kinds of questions lead to the heart of, do you have product market fit? If you get seven different answers from all your different constituents to these questions, then you may not have product market fit, or you may have had product market fit and it has dissipated over time. So I guess I would say I have a set of heuristic questions that I've started to triangulate on to figure that out. So what is the number one thing you demo or put in your pitch deck? What are the other questions? What are the other questions? Yeah. What is the aha moment of your demo? What is true about customers who are like wild fans of your product versus people who tried it and just couldn't make it work? That's less about product market fit and that's trying to pinpoint the ideal customer profile. Where do people provide the most passion? You can even ask engineering like, hey, can you draw me a traffic diagram of how traffic flows through our services and what's the hotspot of it? Where are people using my product not as intended? That's a question CS can answer. And then basically like, what do people consider the thing worth paying for? And the thing I love about B2B is because they're all operating in sort of a knowledge worker context as well, you can ask people all these questions and they're not confused. For example, when you're in B2C and you're asking these types of questions, people are like, I don't, I don't really think this is not my worldview, right? Versus in B2B, you're probably talking to somebody who's like, yeah, I, I do the same thing for my product as well. So they're just like quicker on the trigger. Like I was recently talking to a customer and I was just able to ask them questions like, how do you view us versus this competitor? How do you mm. think about Thing. What makes sense to you packaging wise? And I didn't have to explain this terminology to them. So I think that that's one thing to keep in mind in B2B is the playing field is up leveled in terms of being able to do research. And so you can quickly form points of view on things and then go and validate and try those. Yeah. But to answer your original question of like in zero to one products, I think getting to fit is the earliest, quickest thing. And to me, that is like one clear use case that you can position repeatedly in whatever go-to-market motion or channel you want to have, 80% of the time, it's just hitting. You're like, I find people who exhibit ABC. I tell them I do XYZ. Within X amount of time, they're trying me out. They're ready to pay. We move on. And if that thing is there, then you go from product market fit to go-to-market fit, which is the thing works. I got to scale it. I got to pour money into it, right? Whether it's a self-serve channel or a partner channel or an enterprise sales channel. I think where a lot of companies go awry is the thing is not crystal clear. And then they're artificially propping it up by pouring money into the go-to-market motion of it. Absolutely. I've seen that a lot. You get more tactical, maybe once scenario that you've used to validate that would be helpful. I think as an example, 
I think I struggle with the same thing with consumer versus enterprise and getting that pull or the signal to determine whether or not that you've achieved it so early on in that phase is so is very difficult. One scenario that we're working through right now is targeting 10 active customers that have been asking for a specific thing that has synergies around a given solution and then working with them to kind of co-create that along the journey because they're willing participants. Yeah, I'll say that. I think that idea of like 10 really referenceable customers, like a flagship 10, that's a very common approach. I would say it works better in the SMB commercial space than it does in the enterprise space because in the enterprise space, you could easily find 10 customers but they want 10 different things. And in the SMB space, you're more likely to land on one thing for that exact reason. I'd say two things. One is that's why a lot of B2B products start down market. That's why innovation happens down market because it is easier to find product market fit. You have more confidence that it is true product market fit. And I was actually, I wrote a post about this last week, which is, and then what ends up happening is if you solve somebody's problem and you know it gets adopted in the SMB commercial space, those people are hired by larger companies and they bring that way of doing things and that tool that they're used to upmarket. It's very, very rare to see somebody take a enterprise solution and bring it down market. That's not as common because in a successful enterprise solution has already become kind of a Frankenstein. So that's mm. something to think about. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you can't innovate in the enterprise or land there. I would say there, you're going to rely less on research and talking to customers, and you're going to rely more on somebody who's a domain expert. And you see this every yeah. so often where somebody's like, I've been living this life for 20 years. I know what the problem is. Like I have a very strong point of view. I think it can be hard as a PM to be in that environment because you're like, well, the CEO is really the head of product, right? But because that person really understands the persona, the workflow, the job, they have this insight that they plan around. I do think that's something to keep in mind is product market fit is almost obvious in some enterprise products and you just need the technology to come along to reconcile that problem. Maybe I'll give you sort of a clunky example, which is I'm just waiting for it. I'm sure there's some industry that's awaiting disruption. I don't know. Maybe it's real estate with like the amount of paperwork that they do or some sort of legal thing with contracts where somebody's going to come along and say, by trade, I'm not a technologist. I'm not a PM. I know this space really well. But I've been doing this job for 20 years and this inherent inefficiency. And I learned that there's like technology that can just replace a whole part of what we do. And so, you know, I teamed up with a technologist and he's this person's my CTO and we created this company and it's going to be wildly successful. And that's an example of like somebody who's going to innovate in the enterprise space because they have a really strong point of view of what yeah. product market could look like. Let's wrap it up with some homework for the week for our listeners. So many good insights here, Ibrahim. I, I so appreciate your time. Thanks for spending it with us. And for sure. I'll kick us off and then I'll pass it on to you. So one of the things that I wrote down is asking some of these questions. Like, what is the number th one thing that you demoed to CSMs? What is that aha moment? You listed out a couple others. I think that's something tangible that we can do this week. I think going back to an earlier part of the conversation, I think there's so much pressure right now on everybody to be like, are we making progress? Is it fast enough? We got to move fast. I think just taking a beat and reminding everybody like, this is the goal and charter and North Star of my team. And this is how it matters in the larger context really just helps everybody be set up for success. And I think one way to flip the question for PMs is to, to ask your leadership team, if my team can do multiple things right now, if my team can generate more pipeline, if my team can create more revenue, if my team can reduce the risk of churn, if my team can improve the operating efficiency of our service, what should I be doing? If I can ladder up to the business in multiple ways, what is the most important thing that I can do for the business? And I think it's on leadership to be able to answer that question and say, yes, right now what you can do is if you could rewrite our core service 
to be 30% more efficient so our AWS bill goes down? Yes, do that. If you have a feature in the hopper that's just improving a bunch of stuff and leaks to much better retention, great. Or where we need is like upsell revenue. I think being clear on how people can move the needle is very, very important. Love that. Awesome. Well, Ibrahim, where can our listeners find you? I am all over the internet. So I am at Ibscribe on Twitter. I be scribe because I love to write. I grabbed the handle over a decade ago. And when I grabbed it, people were like, you don't write much. Why would you grab that handle? But now I, I so I've grown into the handle. So you can find me on Twitter at Ibscribe. I'm Ibrahim Bashir on LinkedIn. I actually read and respond to all my LinkedIn emails. So definitely reach out to me if you want to collaborate on anything. I have a Substack newsletter called Run the Business. So if you just Google Substack Run the Business, business. I write about product management, B2B, sometimes not B2B, some satire, some fun stuff, a lot of frameworks. And recently, I've actually been partnering with a platform called Crea, which allows sort of experts in their field, not that I'm saying I'm an expert, but basically people who, who know some stuff to share their knowledge in different ways. So I've been using this platform to create digital products. So like a lot of the templates and frameworks that I've thought about over the years are all available as PDFs for people to download. You can also sort of book time with me one-on-one. -on -one, and I've been doing some group workshops all free just because I, I love to powwow with people. And so it's a way for me to sort of scale my audience and mentorship work. So I'm available through all those ways. And then I, I'm sure there's breadcrumbs about me on the internet that I'm forgetting as well. Amazing. How do you, how do you spell Kriya? C-R-I-Y-A, Kriya. Great. Thanks again, Ibrahim. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I know our listeners will enjoy this conversation. So thank you again. And looks like we finished up our coffee. So go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. You can become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.